For those of you who are watching live, good morning. And if you're listening throughout the rest of the week, thanks for making us part of your day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation, for its pictures, for its imagery, for its pointing to your son Jesus as our great and powerful king. God, we pray that you would continue to open our minds that we might understand, open our eyes that we might see, and open our hands that we might respond in the way that you want us to from this passage today. So God, may my words fall down and your words be lifted up, meeting every one of us where we need it most this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody loved George. He was the gatekeeper at the zoo in Bristol, England. And while a simple job, he absolutely loved his work as the traffic cop and letting people in and out of the parking lot. It had room for about 200 cars and 10 buses, and he would warmly welcome people in when there was space and sadly turn people away when there wasn't. Then one day, George didn't show up to work. The staff thought to themselves, when is the last time he actually missed a day? And they laughed, and the manager hopped online and called the city and said, please send us a new parking lot attendant. To which the city replied, well, the parking lot is your responsibility. The manager said in turn, well, the parking lot belongs to the city. And the city replied, we have no person by the name of George on our payroll. It turns out that this man named George pulled off one of the most elaborate hoaxes in the city of Bristol's history, one of the greatest hoaxes in all of England. Back in 1974, George and his family came to the Bristol City Zoo, parked in a large parking lot, and recognized there is no signage anywhere saying if it belongs to the zoo or if it belongs to the city. And George, always skirting with the law, had this idea. I'm going to come back every few weeks and check to see if that signage changes. Over the next number of months, he realized nothing changed. And then in November of 1974, he grabbed a sign and he put it in that parking lot saying that starting on January 2nd, there would be a small charge for cars and a slightly larger charge for bus. Nobody blinked an eye. People were a little bit upset, but everybody got it. Parking sometimes is free and eventually regulation steps in and you start having to pay. The people in Bristol recognized that over 25 years, George was probably clearing $500 a day without paying a penny of taxes and over his career made between four and $5 million, becoming a fairly wealthy individual. The story was first printed in an England newspaper called The Evening Post and quickly gained international attention. You may have even heard the story before. The only thing that would make this story better is if it was actually true. And that's the problem with deception. It's so close to reality, people are just going to believe it. How many of us have parked in places here in Edmonton or wherever you visited and thought, yeah, I guess this used to be free, but now we have to pay some money for it. And the people didn't think anything of it. And the Evening Post in Bristol, England, printed this story on April 1st, 2007. And people bought it hook, line, and sinker. We're currently going through the book of Revelation, and Satan is angry with God. Last week in Revelation chapter 12, we talked about a baby, a woman, and a dragon. 
And we heard how after this dragon, who is Satan, went after the baby and fell short, he was cast down from heaven to earth, and now he's angry. But he's lost against God. He's absolutely defeated. There is nothing that he can do about that. So he takes out his attention on all of God's people. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers, and we are in Revelation 13. As Pastor Mel was wrapping up his sermon last week, he said, Satan has three plays. He can destroy us. We see this with Jesus on the cross. And if you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, when Jesus finally dies, Satan cheers until he realizes he's lost. And Satan can pursue God's people. And over the last decade, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians have lost their lives because of their faith in Jesus. The second thing Satan can do is he can accuse us. How many times, whether you've said it to yourself or somebody has said it to you, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You don't have the right background. You don't have the education. You don't have the history. Whatever the case is, you're not good enough. It's a shameless ministry plug if you think that to yourself on a regular occasion. We have a ministry called Freedom Session, and it is a perfect place to unpack what that might mean and look like. Finally, Satan can deceive us. From just the third chapter of the Bible, Satan taking the form of a snake, which looks a lot like a miniature dragon, says to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Satan is the great deceiver who takes the truth and twists it into a lie. This is what makes deception so powerful. It has that ring of truth to it, but something it's missing. It's why we love those courtroom dramas so much where somebody says, tell us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The deception begins by perverting what is true. One of the most important beliefs of Christianity is the doctrine of the Trinity says something like this, Christians believe in one God who is infinitely perfect, existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. With Revelation chapter 13 in front of you, take a look at this because I find it absolutely fascinating. In chapter 13, verse 1, we read, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. The dragon himself represents Satan the head of the unholy trinity. The rest of chapter, uh, one, uh, chapter 13, verses one to eight, talks about a beast coming out of the sea. This represents Jesus Christ, but the unholy version. Those are the first eight verses. The last eight verses talk about a beast coming out of the earth, and this represents the unholy version of the spirit. The war begins by Satan deceiving us through power and proximity. The beast out of the sea begins to show us what that power looks like. Here's Revelation 13 verses one and two. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet was like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power, his throne and great authority. Can we just stop for a moment and recognize how terrifying these pictures really are? 
back in chapter 12, which Mel took us through last week, we saw a dragon with seven heads. The week before that, we looked at demonic locusts with long flowing hair and a breastplate and teeth like fangs. This is terrifying stuff. And I think what the author is trying to tell us is there is something that is deeply evil and spiritual at work behind the scenes. Something deeply evil and spiritual at work behind the scenes. Let me show you a picture of a fairly evil man. This is a picture of Joseph Stalin. Imagine John said something like this, and out from the sea came a man who was five foot ten, maybe five foot eleven. He weighed 170 pounds. We'd all go, there's a billion men in the world who look like that. That's not terrifying at all. Joking aside, Joseph Stalin looks like one of my soccer coaches when I was a young kid. This isn't a terrifying looking man, but this beast, that's terrifying. With seven heads, with 10 horns, with 10 crowns. Commentator Heinrich Schiller makes the interesting observation that when the dragon looks into the sea, he beholds his own image which takes an objective reality of its own, knowing and loving himself, the dragon brings forth the beast. In Revelation chapter 12, we read of a dragon with seven heads, with horns and crowns. And he's representing himself here in chapter 13. While not absolutely identical, in the same way the Holy Trinity works, where Jesus isn't absolutely identical to the Father, but certainly similar and sharing the same attributes, so is this unholy beast similar to Satan himself. With verse 2 in front of you, let me take you to the Old Testament book of Daniel chapter 7, and we can see the comparisons that are taking place between an Old Testament apocalyptic book and a New Testament apocalyptic book. This is a summary of chapter seven. In my vision at night, I saw four great beasts, each different from the others coming out of the sea. The first was like a lion, the second looked like a bear, the third like a leopard, and the fourth beast was terrifying and frightening and very powerful. Most people are in agreement with what these four beasts are. The first beast, the first beast is a leopard and represents ancient Greece, alluding to the swiftness and the agility as their military moved forward in conquest, especially under Alexander the Great. The bear is a metaphor for the Medo-Persian Empire, depicting the kingdom's ferocious strength and their incredible stability. The lion represents ancient Babylon and their all-consuming power that extended across their domain. And whether we're talking about the fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7 or that sea beast here in Revelation chapter 13, most people think it's a final kingdom, great and powerful and terrible in its strength, both in a military side and a political side. It's ferocious, it's terrifying, it's all-consuming, and will make the empires of Greece and Babylon and Rome and Medo-Persia seem small and insignificant beside it. The description continues in verses three and four. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? Satan loves to mimic and mock God. He takes that which is good and he corrupts it. Do you remember 
in the New Testament what kind of savior it was that the Jews were waiting for. They certainly weren't waiting for a suffering servant. They were waiting for someone who had military might, who had political power. And Satan, knowing this is what the people are looking for, gives it to them in the final kingdom. While our 21st century ears might not have picked up the reference, listen again to verse 4, because it would have been very familiar to the original audience. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? This is what people in the first century said of Caesar. Who is like Caesar and who can stand against him? This type of leader will wow people with their might and their power. Control Rome, that's child's play. Control the Middle East, that's impressive. But to have political and military control of the whole world, people will bow down in worship. Satan's mockery of God doesn't stop there. You've probably heard that line, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Jesus died and rose back to life. And Satan thinks to himself, you know what would be impressive? Not just ruling this world, but showing a level of deception so powerful that I raise this military leader back to life from a horrible wound. We read in verse three, its head seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound would have been healed and the people marveled. To quote the commentator, Dennis Johnson, many interpreters think this verse predicts a future remarkable recovery of the Antichrist from a deadly wound, a deceptive attempt to parallel Christ's resurrection. Are you beginning to see how deceptive that power is? Not only will the beast have political power and military might expected of one worthy to be worshiped, he will have some sort of near-death experience to rival that of Jesus Christ. And then, wait until you hear him talk. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. This is the deception of power. Here's a man with political power with military might. Here's a man the world is hoping to see come to incredible greatness of which the history of the world has never seen. Here's a man who speaks blasphemy, 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 and the world is just soaking it up. My light summer reading includes the biography of Steve Jobs, which is about 600 pages thick. Now, let me just put this out there so no conspiracy theorist can start. I do not believe Steve Jobs is the Antichrist. This is just an illustration about the power of words. Over and over again, I'm about halfway through the book. We keep hearing this idea about Steve Jobs and his reality distortion field. And the people who the biographer interviews say he was so charismatic, so brilliant, so persuasive that people were caught up in what they coined the reality distortion field. And there would be a group of programmers and engineers and people modeling and putting together the first original MacBooks. And he would get in the room and he would say, no, 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 no. This is the vision I have. You got to do something beautiful and make it right and cursive and do things that Microsoft and Dell and Hewlett Packard could never do. And the people would just sit there and go, but is that even possible? Now you might think, well, Dave, you're talking about one of the the greatest leaders and and, uh, innovators in the 21st century, and that might well be true. 
But how much greater do you think this political leader, this military commander, this antichrist will be? 80 years ago, another person created a reality distortion field and six million Jews died because of how persuasive and charismatic and bold and life-transforming he is. Verses seven and eight. The beast was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. This is one powerful guy. But even he has limits. There's this incredible scene that happens at Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is right beside Pilate and the Jews and the Jewish priests are filling up inside of Pilate's courtyard and they're yelling out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate looks at Jesus and you can tell there's something going on there. And he says to him, where are you from? Jesus says nothing. I would imagine Pilate gets furious. He is a man who is used to people responding when he talks. And he says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? This is Jesus' response in John 19, 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above depending on the translation that you have in front of you, in both in verse five and in verse seven, you'll read a word allowed or given authority to. Satan can only do what God gives him authority to do. Satan can only do what God gives him authority to do. This is not a real fight. Have you ever wrestled a toddler before? I have a six, four and two-year-old at home. We wrestle all the time. If I wrestle my two-year-old, she can do nothing against me. She can't punch me. She can't kick me. She can't push me over unless I allow it. Satan is handcuffed by God. There is nothing he can do unless God allows him to do it. World leader, military commander, blasphemer of God, conqueror of Christians, the only way he's allowed to do any of that is because God allows it. An incredible power to deceive. And that's the only, only the first part of the chapter. The second half doesn't lighten up. Going back to our big idea, Satan deceives through power and proximity. We move on to verse 11 and 12. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. You remember that idea of the unholy trinity. The dragon mimics the father. The sea beast mimics Jesus. The earth beast mimics the Holy Spirit. One of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to point us to the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the greatness of Jesus. The primary role of the earth beast is to point us to the beast of the sea. Even the image we're given is significantly more wholesome. This isn't a beast with seven heads and 10 horns and 10 crowns on it. This is a beast that looks like a lamb. It's furry. 
It's cuddly. It's deceptively attractive. Where the sea beast is an untouchable military leader and political commander. The beast from the earth is a religious leader. He feels much more accessible. He looks like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. This idea of emperor worship might be foreign to our North American ears, but to the first century listeners, this wasn't a foreign idea at all. Throughout the last decade of the first century, local religious authorities were the strongest advocates of emperor worship. In fact, Rome didn't even have to make this a law. Cities would compete to see who they could build a temple to and who could be called the capital of that emperor, the capital of that political leader. I don't feel like I have any political access to my city councilor, my MLA, or my member of parliament. I can call their offices but will I get an email or a phone call back? Highly unlikely. But for all of you listening, you could send me an email and I'll return it within 24 hours. Many of you have my cell number. You could text me right now and I would probably respond within the hour. The religious leader is different and he exists to help people worship the beast of the sea. The religious leader who later in this book will be called the false prophet is available. He's accessible. He's winsome. He's the spokesman. And because of that perceived proximity, his deception is incredibly powerful. Verses 13 to 15. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. What makes this description so powerful is that it's so close to the real thing. Have you ever had a Jehovah Witness or Mormon knock on your door? And you start talking to them a little bit and you think, man, these guys seem to believe the same thing we do. They believe Jesus is the son of God. They read the Bible. They're arguably more wholesome than I am. What's the difference between me and these JWs and these Mormons who are standing on my doorstep? The deception of proximity is incredibly powerful. We can look at a Satan worshiper and go, yeah, that guy looks nothing like me. The things he does, the occultic practices he's part of, there's no way that's going to trick me. But a spinoff of the truth, it's a little bit more difficult. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and here's what he says in chapter 1, verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I absolutely love this verse. I pray as I study. I pray as I write. I pray after my message. I pray before I preach. By God's grace, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit to preach to you with power and with the word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And Satan wants to do the same. The false prophet is acting as the unholy spirit. He comes with enticing words. He comes with power. He is unbelievably convincing, charismatic, and winsome. Jesus performs great signs, so does the prophet. Elijah calls fire down from heaven, so does the prophet. Those false religions, they create 
images and beasts that we shouldn't worship, the false prophet can actually make them come alive and speak. But on closer examination, something isn't quite right. When that Jehovah Witness or Mormon stands at your door and talks about Jesus as the Son of God, they're saying the same things we are, but they mean it in a completely different way. They don't actually believe that Jesus himself is God, that he's existed eternally with the Father and is the second member of the Trinity, and by his name only we are saved. No, that's not what they believe at all. And it's the same with this false prophet. He may come in word and in power, but he completely disobeys the first and the second commandment and tells us to bow down to this beast who is not the Messiah. My friends, know the word of God. Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The false prophet isn't done, verses 16 and 17. Also, it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This feels rather ominous, doesn't it? Like after this reading, there should be a big gong that happens. In the ancient Roman Empire, it was normal for both slaves and soldiers to be marked by either their owner or their military unit. These identifying symbols would let others know, oh, you belong to the Johnsons. Oh, you belong to the Smiths. Oh, you belong to that military unit that's dedicated to Caesar. This isn't completely unusual. We do the same thing today. Engineers wear a ring on their pinky finger. If you talk to somebody who works in the military, they'll say, I'm part of the 108th Air Defense Military Brigade, and they are proud of that. Navy SEALs might have a tattoo suggesting that they are a Navy SEAL. Whether or not the mark of the beast and the seal of God's believer on their forehead is an actual literal feature, I don't know. It may very well be. But what I do know is this is that John is absolutely binary. There is no gray area. You either belong to God or to Satan, to the true lamb who is slain or the dragon who is a great beast. And this beast has a number. This calls for wisdom, says the author. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. I'm a bit of a numbers geek, so you're going to have to put up with me for a couple of minutes. And if you don't like numbers, hopefully I make a good math teacher just for the time being. There's two significant theories behind this idea of 666. And one of, the practice, one of them is the practice of geometria, where letters are given numerical equivalents. For example, A is equal to 1. B is equal to two, C is equal to three. But before you jump ahead and go, well, obviously Z is equal to 26. That's not quite the case. Once we get to the letter J, it's 10, but then you count in increments of 10. K is 20, L is 30, M is 40, and so forth. When you get to S, we get to 100, and then we count in three digits. For example, if you were to take my full name, David Schmidt, my number is 782. If you find this interesting and you want to take a closer look, you can find all of our slides on the website or, of course, pause the video as well. But let me show you where this falls apart. While it's easy to come up with a number, you can't move backwards from that number and easily discern what that person's name would be. Also, if you want someone to be the beast, you kind of have to fudge the numbers a little bit. 
In the first century, the emperor who drove Christians absolutely batty was the emperor Nero. So of course, when the first century Christians receive this letter, they think, is Nero the beast? How can we get to 666? Well, Nero in Greek doesn't equal that number. Emperor Nero in Greek doesn't equal that number. But if you use Gemetria in Hebrew, then we magically get to 666, which means there's a little bit of mental gymnastics that are necessary to get to where we need to be. The second major theory is much, much simpler and looks at 666 as a symbol. God is sometimes given the number of 777. Seven being the number of completeness, three being the number of the Trinity. It's perfection of perfection. The beast gets the number 666. He is perfectly incomplete. He is a superhuman to be sure, but he falls in comparison to God. While we don't know much of the details, it would seem like a world religious leader will combine forces with a world political leader and become a powerfully deceptive force as they seek to be worshiped. So then what is our response? If you were following along closely, you noticed I skipped a couple verses in the middle of our chapter. One of the ways to do biblical interpretation when it comes up is to see what's in the middle of a chapter. The first eight verses talk about the sea beast. The last eight verses talk about the earth beast. But there are two verses in the middle. This is what it says. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This isn't an identical quote to Jeremiah, but it's incredibly similar. The book of Jeremiah, if you're not familiar with it, is one of the longest and saddest books in the entire Bible. People have actually called Jeremiah the weeping prophet. He's trying to convince the nation of Israel and Judah to repent, to come back to God, because if they don't, a nation will take them into captivity, and he's just laughed out of the room the people who are peers with Jeremiah, the false prophets are saying, this will never happen. Don't believe Jeremiah. He's crazy. God told you that you are his chosen people. Nothing will happen. We read this in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse two. This is what the Lord says, those destined for death to death, for the sword to the sword, for starvation to starvation, for captivity to captivity. In the midst of all these false prophets, Jeremiah's voice rings out as the true prophet, even though it is words that nobody wants to hear. And if you're sitting here going, Dave, I don't know if I want to hear those two verses. In a passage saturated with the devil who is trying to deceive us, God's word is penetrating truth like an arrow piercing the lies and deceit and striking our hearts with truth. It's going to be difficult. Be faithful. Endure. Stand firm. There's something else going on here as well, which I think is absolutely beautiful. If the line we just read sounds familiar, anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's because it said seven times in Revelation chapters two and three to each one of the seven churches with no exception. All seven churches are told by Jesus, if you are faithful, 
and endure. You will be conquerors. Stay firm. Believe in me. The faithful saints will endure to the end. Let me close with this. One of my friends told me a story that while he was a youth pastor, he had two graduating students who were going to go to the University of Toronto together. And because that's not where their church was, they decided that they were going to be roommates. The story starts off and you go, okay, where is this going to go? And he said, Dave, there was two problems with this. One, these guys were really young. One of them was a Christian and he was a good kid. But the second was an atheist and he was wicked smart. And my problem with this atheist was that he came to the youth group all the time. He thought we were a lot of fun. He had a lot of friends here. But because of his brilliance, my friend was convinced that he was going to lead the Christian astray. He wasn't just convinced because the guy was smart. He was convinced because he walked up to him and said, Hey, pastor, by Thanksgiving, I'm going to have my friend renounce his faith. The weeks quickly flew by and my friend said, I didn't know what to expect on Thanksgiving weekend. I didn't even know if they would show up at all. And then on Thanksgiving Sunday, these two guys walk in and the atheist has a big smile on his face and my friend's heart sinks. And this man who is an atheist comes up to my friend and says, I've accepted Jesus as my savior. My friend looks at him and says, what? How did that happen? And he goes, over the first three weeks together as roommates, every single night I teased and I mocked and I questioned my roommate. How can you believe in a book that's 2,000 years old? Do you actually believe that God came down to earth in the flesh? Do you actually believe all these miracles are true? How, you, how can you believe all of this? It's ridiculous. Back it up. Show me the support. And this young man, who wasn't as smart as his friend, looked at the atheist and said, I don't know all the answers. What I do know is this. Jesus died for my sins. My life has changed and he's coming back. And this atheist looked at my friend and said, after about three weeks of this, I said, I'm gonna come to church with you. My second Sunday in church, I decided to turn my life over to Jesus. My friends, life is going to be difficult. Who knows what this is all going to look like. But we can faithfully endure. Hostaged by hope, we can say, I don't know what's going to happen. But what I do know is this. Jesus died for my sins. My life has been changed and he's coming back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Revelation. And many of us have questions and we don't know what it all means and sermons that I preach and that Mel preach and that others will be sharing may not answer all the questions either. But here's what we know. You died for our sins. Our lives have been transformed. And one day you will come back. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us strength to faithfully endure to bring you glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.